Good morning. Sanctity of Life Sunday. I will honestly tell you this is not a sermon that I would choose to preach. It's um, not an easy topic to study and one that weighs heavy upon my heart and not, not, not the funnest thing that could be talked about. Six years ago, I wasn't facing you, I was facing Bill Bushhouse as I stood right across from my lovely bride and was married about this time. And I would have never imagined that God would have given me such an amazing gift of Lucy, and nor would I have imagined he would have given me the grace of being able to preach the gospel. So I, I come to this message not delighting necessarily in the topic, but delighting in the outcome, which is the grace of God that, and the gospel that covers matters such as abortion and these difficult practices that we see in our society today. So as we go through this and as we we're burdened by this and as we once again remind ourselves of what is happening maybe right down the street from us, I want to encourage you that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's good to be burdened by sin. The question then remains, once burdened by it, what will you do with that burden? I would also tell you that if you are um, a parent and you have some young children in house this morning, I won't be saying anything or describing anything that they would have probably not already heard of. I want to be sensitive to that subject, so I won't be showing any pictures or proclaiming anything uh, that would be out of bounds. Now, there will be, just because of the nature of the topic, certainly talk about death and destruction, but... um, that's happening all around us. We normally, in the practice of this church, would preach expositionally, word uh, verse by verse through Scripture. And yet, we will obviously take a topic this morning. And the Word of God does not bind us uh, to verse by verse, especially when it comes to important issues that Scripture expresses, expressly addresses, such as the topic of the sanctity of life. And I think we would be wise to understand that as just as we could preach about Christ's resurrection any time other than April, the celebration of Easter, or proclaim the truth of Christ's birth other than in December, we could certainly talk and proclaim the sanctity of life other than on the third Sunday in January. But it's also wise as a church to understand history and to bring the word of God to bear upon issues of our day. And this is a day when... We most churches in our land would set aside this as Sanctity of Life Sunday and proclaim the truth. And we want to not shirk from doing that as well. January 13th, 1984. Today is an important day because this is the 30-year anniversary of the first, first Sanctity of Life Sunday. Ronald Reagan proclaimed it. He was 11 years after Roe v. Wade. And this is what he said in his proclamation on the first national Sanctity of Human Life Day. He said, We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in or pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then, on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws, that we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. Forty-one years ago, on January 22, 1973, which would be Thursday, the Supreme Court, the highest court of our land, in the case of Roe v. Wade, said that a child in the womb, which up to that time might have been the safest place in the world, was not to be considered human, a human person and could now be murdered. And since that fatal day 41 years ago, the mind-numbing number of 50 million plus children have been killed in America supported by law the word of God of course is not silent on this matter and I would agree with Ronald Reagan President Ronald Reagan that it is our responsibility to reflect on the precious gift of human life and to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings but I don't agree with President Ronald Reagan just because he said it 
I agree because that would be scriptural. That would be what the word of God would say. And I trust that this morning as we go to scripture, we will clearly understand that the issue of the sanctity of life is not an issue of science, nor is it an issue of personal personal decisions. It's an issue of scripture. It's a spiritual matter. And obviously scripture will speak clearly to that. Last year we entered the fifth decade of this atrocity. An atrocity that will, if Christ tarries, I believe, well mark the history books in a hundred years from now. And may very well overshadow what we now would think as maybe the greatest atrocity of our time, which was uh, Hitler's Nazi Germany and the Holocaust that happened there. But I believe in a hundred years that what we have been doing in the past 41 years will clearly mark our history books and will overshadow much else. Last year was an eventful year for the fight for life. In a rare twist, the two biggest stories of the fight for life became two of the biggest national stories, which is quite rare. Namely, that would be Kermit Gosnell and his House of Horrors in Philadelphia, and then the Texas House Bill Number 2, placing some of the highest restrictions on abortion of any state. And House Bill... Number two was taken all the way to the Supreme Court, and even today, Attorney General Greg Abbott and his team are still fighting for that law to stay in effect. These were two very important events because it brought abortion and all its horrors face just very affront right in people's faces of really what was happening. And we know what is happening, but it was brought right before our eyes and we could very few of us could turn away Don Schazenbach of Remission to Restore America said it well concerning Kermit Gosnell we have been dragged shall we say kicking and screaming through the gates of Hades to gawk at the horrors now laid bare there we discovered again the masterful beguiling language of the ultimate evil genius he's referring to Satan obviously being worked toward its usual destructive ends. We found that suctioning pieces meant pulling off arms and legs of an unborn child. A child becomes a fetus when scheduled for dismemberment. Snipping the spinal cord means essentially beheading. And instead of being born, the fetus is demised. And even with the horrors seen by those who could not turn away, and I would encourage you not to turn away, there still remains little unchanged in our country And the discrepancy is great between what we deem as valuable. Consider this. The Animal Legal Defense Fund is a nonprofit corporation, and they are the ones who champion animal cruelty, uh, the rights for animals and animal cruelty laws. And they turned out their top 11 most interesting animal cruelty laws for 2013, and I would list some in order. And they're humorous, but I will reflect upon why their humor is short-lived. In Iowa, horses are banned from eating fire hydrants, which is probably a good thing. In Maryland, if you have a lion, you can't bring it to a movie theater. It is against the, these are real laws. It is against the law to hunt whales in Nebraska. So if global warming really does happen and the ocean evades all the way into Nebraska, the whales are safe. In Georgia, giving away goldfish at bingo contests is banned. Kentucky has determined that you cannot release a wild or a feral hog into the wild. Think about that one. Alaska, it's illegal to push a live moose out of an airplane while in flight. Now, I would agree with that one. Because if I was underneath it, I don't want that animal coming down. On a more serious note, last night and this morning, if you went to News 4 San Antonio, on the website there, there was no mention of any of those that were aborted or the amount that were aborted in Bear County. And Bear County is one of the highest counties in the nation for abortions. No story on the 30th Sanctity of Life if you, uh, Sunday was that being set up by President Ronald Reagan 30 years ago. None of that was there. Uh, One of the top stories last night and of this morning was that an injured whooping crane died at the San Antonio Zoo where it was being treated after losing one of its legs. 
On January 30, 2004, among other charges, Michael Garcia was convicted of felony animal cruelty for having stomped a child's goldfish to death in the midst of a domestic rage. Animal cruelty is defined as a person is, guilt, a person is guilty of aggravated animal cruelty with no, with no justifiable purpose when he or she intentionally kills or intentionally causes serious physical injury to a companion animal with aggravated cruelty. For purposes of this section, aggravated cruelty shall mean conduct which is, one, intended to cause extreme physical pain, or two, is done or carried out in an especially depraved or sadistic manner. That's the definition of animal cruelty in this country. Now I, like many of you, would like, to like the whooping crane, the horse, the lion, the whale, the goldfish, and the moose as much as anybody else. And I would not stand here and say that it's right to be cruel to animals. I'm simply trying to point out the great and hopefully obvious inconsistency in this country when it comes to the rights of the unborn and what we value to the point of legal action. Namely, that you can be prosecuted for mistreating an animal and yet right down the street, children are murdered in the name of love and health. Henry Van Til said, culture is religion externalized. And my question would be, if the culture of America is one of death for the unwanted, what does that say about the religion of America that has long been identified as Christian? Or closer to home, what does that say about me or you as a Christian? How did a culture that started so well over the last 100 years degrade to the point where the unborn is counted as less than the goldfish? Scripture will speak clearly to this. Let's go to Genesis 3. And here we'll understand... Where this, where we began to go wrong and what we face. Genesis 3. And I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me be with, to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We must remember that abortion is simply at its basic form, an outworking of our sin nature. No more, no less. It is an outworking of my sin nature. Namely, that I was reborn with a, a bent toward rebellion against God. And it wasn't long before that bent became manifested itself. Uh, any parent in here would say, would, would be able to attest that it doesn't, you don't have to teach your child to say no 
or to defiantly oppose you. You don't have to teach your child to throw a fit and oppose your instructions. And it may be cute enough when it's two, but over the course of time, when you're 22, it's not cute anymore. And it's not any longer about vegetables and picking up toys. Now it's about murder and sexual promiscuity outside of marriage. Our enemy that we see here in Genesis 3 is a formidable foe. And it's been his desire from the very beginning of the creation of mankind to destroy those who bear the image of God. We see uh, in Genesis 1.27, just a page over, that we are told that man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And you may remember uh, just from this morning... That as we're studying the catechism, question number three is, why did God make you in all things? The answer, for his own glory. So it's God's desire that we reflect his glory to the world. That we, as his image bearers, would present a clear picture of the magnificence and transcendence of the almighty God that we serve. And so do we honestly think that Satan is going to simply sit idly by and allow that to happen without opposition? No. It's been Satan's desire from the moment God created man to destroy us, to destroy those who bear the image of God. We do not fight against Kermit Gosnell or Planned Parenthood. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual matter. Far more than a scientific matter or an issue of society. This is a spiritual and scriptural matter. Go with me to Revelation 12. From one end of the Bible to the other end, we get a very clear and graphic depiction of Satan's hatred for God's creation in Revelation 12. And I would like to read all of this chapter. It is a bit long. But I trust you can follow along. And Revelation is not normally a book that we would turn to in our daily Bible reading. So you may not have read this in a period of time and might find it interesting. But I want you to notice the graphic, horrific way that Satan is described as seeking to destroy image bearers. God's image bearers. Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the, ground, to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Notice with me that last verse. And this is the point I want you to see in Revelations 12. That if you set aside the eschatology and trying to figure out what is time and times and time and a half and two wings, all those things, those, that's important. And those, that'll be, that can be for another time. But what I want you us to see clearly is this verse in 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And don't miss this, that we are in a war And abortion is not the war. Abortion is the casualty list. And when you click on the internet and read about abortion, all that is is the smoke, the smell of the battlefield. The war is for the souls of men. The war is between the destruction of man and the salvation of men by Christ Jesus alone for his glory alone. That's the war. And let me say that if you name the name of Jesus Christ today, if you have repented of your sins and turned to him alone for salvation from his eternal and righteous wrath, then the war continues for you. It's not over. But it's no longer about your eternal soul, but rather for the marring and the maiming to the fullest extent possible of the glory of God in your life. That's his desire. He wants to mar and maim to the fullest extent possible the glory of God in your life. And he will do this by crafty tricks and subtle deceit, lies, direct opposition, diversion tactics, whatever it happens to be, he will do it to keep you from engaging in the battle against the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes for the glory of God. We cannot forget this. One of the subtle tricks Satan likes to play in our minds when we think about abortion concerns the people who are partaking of this convenient atrocity. And it would be unusual, let me proclaim this, it would be very unusual that there is not someone in this room that has not been a part of, either from the female side of the equation or the male side of the equation, an abortion. And I would proclaim this message to you That this is not to shame you any further, but to help you to see that that sin was paid for as equally as all the rest by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is grace and forgiveness to be found with Christ. And if you are a not a Christian, let me tell you that this weight and guilt and carrying of this burden will be unable to be done by you alone. And only Christ can carry that. And come to Him. There is hope and forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those, that sin, like all the rest, will be swept as far as the east is from the west. His grace is amazing. R.C. Sproul Jr. lists three myths of those partaking in abortions. And I think it would be wise for us to consider these three myths. I find uh, myself... Uh, very easily swayed to believe some of these subtle lies. These, there's three of them here. And all three of these, catch this, all three of these myths have an element of truth. So all three of these myths are sort of right, but they're not the real heart of the matter. And, and these myths can, can regulate abortion to less than the horrendous practice that it is. And it makes it more palatable. You see, a lot of this has to do with terminology. The world seeks to water down the terminology. We don't want to use murder or kill or blood, but none of that. Let's just use simple, very uh, easy terms. I'm going to read this. The first lie is that the clientele at the local mill is made up of sweet-faced, 
high school girls who got carried away with their boyfriends and came in blissfully ignorant of what goes on inside. Second is that they are women in helplessly desperate straits that see no other way out. The boyfriend has threatened to beat her if she doesn't abort his child. The stepfather threatens to kill her if she doesn't abort his child. The rent check is about to bounce and she will lose her job if anyone finds out she is pregnant. The third lie is that those who come are peculiarly wicked people. That they come equipped with bulging bellies and horns on their heads, their mouths spewing angry obscenities. And there are certainly, I would say, those type of people, minus the horns, of course, but there are certainly those who would come in just vehement opposition to life. But none of these three are the majority. They're a very tiny minority. R.C. Sproul Jr. continues, The first myth is useful to us because it persuades us that all we need to do is educate the world. And this was one, this one, the first myth was that these are just sweet-faced high school young ladies. Simply write a letter to the editor. Engage in a debate on Facebook. Hand out pamphlets. The myth reinforces the notion that what is wrong in the world is a lack of information. And that will cure us, and that what will cure us is more teaching. If we can just get this ad on television, this other message on billboards, if we can just persuade everyone that the unborn are babies, the nightmare will end. But the nightmare is that they already know. They are already abundantly conscious that a baby is growing inside them and they want to kill it. Now, is it wrong to engage in debate? No. But again, this is a small minority This is a myth. Doing those things will help engage the minority, but it doesn't touch the majority. The second myth is, or doesn't touch the majority as as well as we would like it to. The second myth is useful to us because it persuades us, this was the myth that these women are in hopelessly desperate situations, because it persuades us that all we need to do is write a check. If we support our local crisis pregnancy center, which I would highly advocate that you do, we will put an end to abortion. It's a wonderful thing to indeed support your local crisis pregnancy center. It will not, however, stop people from murdering their babies. Do we really think that anyone willing to murder her baby because of difficult circumstances would not murder her baby where circumstances were less difficult? Changing circumstances isn't changing hearts. That's myth number two. Myth number three. The third myth may be the most dangerous, and I'm going to tell you right now that the third myth, the myth that these people are just some evil creation, is the one that I would most side with. This is the one I have to battle. It's the most dangerous, he says. When we think this way, that those who procure abortions hiss and spit and spew vile profanations, we push this evil away from us. As if it were some alien beings doing such horrors, We excuse our inaction on the grounds that these people are not like us, but are sinners of a whole other order. We think that it may just be a good thing that these kinds of people not reproduce because it will just bring more of their kind of evil into the world. So those are the three myths. The question to us is, what is the truth? The uh, the truth, as Sproul ends up stating in his article, is that abortion is a we problem. Not a them problem. It's crucial to understand this. As I said last year when I preached that uh, I quoted the Alan Guttmacher Institute, which is a nonprofit corporation um, working with Planned Parenthood, and they identify that one in six women that partake in getting an abortion are evangelicals. So if you do the numbers, we're over 8 million that have been killed by those sitting in the pews right alongside with us around the world. It's something to consider that the reality, the truth, is not these three myths. The truth is those that are partaking in these type of things are people just like me and my wife. Just like you. They look no different, they breathe no different, they talk no different. They're very much the same. They might come from different backgrounds, but they're very much the same. Why is that then? And I will tell you, as we looked at Genesis 3, because abortion is simply a continuation of the first list, list, first sin listed in Scripture between man to man, and that is murder. It's simply a continuation out of that. 
And I am guilty of this sin as much as anyone who murders their child or murders their enemy in cold blood or not in cold blood. And so when I preach against abortion, this is not to say that abortion, and hear this, very, we've got to understand this, abortion is not some special status sin. And we like to make it think that way because it makes, it look, makes us look more righteous. But it's not some special status sin. It's a sin. And certainly the implications and the consequences and the outworkings of that sin are, are different and carry different weights than if I was just to go speak a lie or get angry or hate someone in my mind or look lustfully at a woman in my heart. But to think that somehow I am better than they is naive at best and haughtily prideful at worst. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. I am guilty of the same root sin that drives one to abort their child as much as anyone else. I and we are guilty, that same root sin being that I don't want to necessarily always want to worship God, I want to worship the creature. And we see this in Romans 1. We want to worship ourselves and not wanting to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength or our neighbor as ourselves. But rather, I want to place myself as the most supreme being to be enjoyed, to be lifted up, to be doted and glorified. I'm guilty of that. And that's just simply the same root sin that causes one to go to their local abortion mill. I want to exalt myself. I really don't care about others. It's the same thing. I am as guilty of that sin as they are. And I'm just as guilty of not loving God as I shouldn't. And that guilt, if not atoned, just that one sin of not loving God as I shouldn't, if I never, if I never went and had an abortion or was a part of that, I would be just as guilty of God's righteous wrath and need His atoning blood for my sin as those who would have abortions. Our guilt puts us in the same our guilt from sin puts us in the same place before an almighty holy God. The statement from Walt Kelly's comment strip Pogo, which some of the parents would remember that, is never more true when considering the topic of abortion. We have met the enemy, can you finish it? And he is us. It's true. Our society for some time has been infatuated with the concept of love. And there was obviously the sexual revolution in the 60s, which, by the way, has not really ended. It's still continuing to this day. And we've refined in this country the definition of love. And we've called it instead acceptance, self-gratification, living in the moment. And that improper concept of love states that as long as one does something in the name of love, then it's somehow baptized in this ooey vat of goodness and all is well. C.S. Lewis, in the introduction to his book, The Four Love States, and he's talking about in context, First John, where First Apostle John says, God is love. He says this, listen to this quote. This is so applicable to our day. And if you're if you're around people who who say who are doing things that are vehemently and obviously opposed to God's will and they say I love God and yet they won't admit to their sin and they continue doing these things and, and sort of as an excuse Is this love, this concept of love that's really the world's definition? Listen to this quote. C.S. Lewis, St. John's saying that God is love has long been balanced in my mind against the remark of a modern author. And he quotes a modern author, which I can't pronounce his name, he's French. Something of M. Denis de Rougemont. That love, here's a quote, love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. Which, of course, 
C.S. Lewis, can be restated in the form, here it is, begins, love begins to be a demon the moment it begin, he begins to be a god. This balance seems to me an indispensable safeguard. If we ignore it, the truth that God is love may slyly come to mean for us the converse that love is God. We may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still so called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Eric Metaxics, who speaks on Breakpoint, Chuck Colson's Breakpoint radio broadcast set on Friday, in response, or in uh, the context of C.S. Lewis's quote, says this, C.S. Lewis warned us, human love begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. In other words, if we tell ourselves that anything is permissible for the sake of love, we allow ourselves to justify any evil. A society that advocates both gross incivility and killing in the name of love is a society that forgotten, that's forgotten what the word means. And I said that the root of this sin is really, who do you love? Who will you worship? But we see the definition of love in the Bible from the Apostle John in 1 John that God is love and we also see it in John 3.16 For God so loved, there's the agape love, the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 15, 13 and 14, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Christ, and we, we were Christ's enemies and he laid down his life for us. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ eclipses even this unspeakable evil, the murder of the unborn. It eclipses the unspeakable evil of me hating my neighbor. It eclipses the unspeakable evil of speaking in an angry way toward my wife. It eclipses the atrocity of my selfishness and doing little when I should do more in the fight against abortion. The grace of God eclipses all else. God is love. And is here at the gospel where we as believers in Jesus Christ can gain a long-term commitment and motivation. You want a long-term commitment and motivation in the fight against sin? Go to the gospel. It will give you an unquenchable drive to fight against the societal evils of our day like abortion. Because it's here at the gospel where I see my sin in the light of God's holiness. Not their sin. Where I realize that my unspeakable evil is not justifiable against other sin, but in fact condemns, condemns me to death because it's in opposition to the perfection of God rather than just slightly better than the next person. It's here at the gospel where I realize that my sins have been rolled away as the hymn states. Not because of my righteousness, but because of God's love and granting me his righteousness and taking my guilt it is then that we go to the lost and the dying. The world around us, and instead of looking at those obtaining abortions as enemies, we see ourselves, if not for the grace of God. We see ourselves in need of the truth of Scripture. And out of what would hopefully then be self-preservation, we in love extend the truth we extend the message of the gospel. The message that will save them, not just save that child for a few breaths, but save a soul for eternity, irregardless of whether that child is saved. So, what can we do? Practically, in closing here, application. Three simple suggestions, and they're not in any particular order as I close, and I've already alluded to the main thing, which is a fuller understanding of the gospel and the proclaiming it to all. Men, women, children, boys, girls. So the first one is, as I proclaimed, preach the truth. Preach the gospel. 
Don't go just to the abortion mill to protest. That means you're in defense. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the truth. And don't stop proclaiming it to them. Proclaim it to yourself. Because that's what's going to give you a drive and a heart for the lost. Don Schusenbach of Mission to America again. In reference to the arguments that Christians are sometimes prone to use, we are prone to use, and to prove that abortion is wrong, rather than using the scriptures to prove such, rather than proclaiming the gospel, and I'm not against using alternative arguments, but sometimes that becomes our crutch, and before long it's easier to just know a five-point argument rather than the gospel, and proclaim it in the heat of an argument or a discussion with someone. John Schesenbach says this, it's a good reminder. There is a philosophical fork in the road of heaven, ahead of us, and he was writing this last year. It's the same fork that was there 40 years ago. Will we try to advance the kingdom and morality of Christ by instructing the larger culture in the way of Christ? Or will we seek first to build his kingdom using humanistic arguments we believe will be now magically acceptable to secular-minded people? It seems almost ludicrous we have to ask any of this. Why did we ever believe unredeemed people would act like redeemed men? Why did we think that correct science would elicit proper morals? We were and are expecting behavior that will never be. The unsaved do not have the power to act righteously. Their minds are at enmity with God. As a group, they will turn toward the civilization of Christ. They will not turn toward the civilization of Christ without his spirit and prevailing influence. Hence we, know what it Hence we know what fork we must travel. Our only path to success is to preach and teach biblical truth as it applies to the abortion issue. The only tool God uses to transform his people is his word preached. The culture calls it foolishness, but we call it the power and wisdom of God. God truly transforms men and the societies of men through the word preached. This then must be our chosen road for the future. Number one, preach the truth. Number two, support. I would encourage you to get involved if you're not already or you can get more involved, do so. I thought David was very wise this morning in his stating of the spheres of life. So there are different families in here in different spheres and some more concentrated on the home because of the age of their children and some can be more concentrated on the community and, the pro- and, and, and reaching out and some more pro- uh, focused can be more focused on the church there's different spheres of life and so I would not in here sit here and tell you I would not be here today and tell you if you have a two year old and a one year old you, know, you should be up at all hours making posters and marching ten miles that may not be the time but you can do something And you can support somehow. And you can get involved in some way. There's the crisis pregnancy centers. There's the sidewalk counseling ministries. We will have, as we did last year, on March 15th of this year, mark your calendar, we'll have life awareness training. And it's a two or three hour time where we just go through what does scripture say so that we can, back to number one in practical application, be able to preach the gospel in these areas and see where scripture comes to bear on different arguments. Next week, as we did last year, we'll have little baby bottles. And I encourage you to take those home and fill them up with change to support the local crisis pregnancy center. And that's a great thing. You can put that on your table and you've got your two or three-year-old and they can say, Mommy, why do we have a bottle on our table? We don't drink bottles anymore. Why are there coins in there? You can't drink coins. And you can sit there and talk to them about why we're doing what we're doing, how we're fighting. I think the education of your children... In abortion, in abortion topics is, is one of the greatest things you can do. Don't let your children grow up and not know that some babies don't make it. Don't let them grow up and don't un, not understand that their sin is the same as that sin. Help them see this. Give them a heart for the unborn. They naturally do. They naturally have a heart for little ones. The third thing, which is always what we should be doing, and yet it's easy just to say it and hard to do it, is to pray. Pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are contemplating an abortion. And don't think 
that there are not, that's not happening. There may be a young lady in this room that will one day, if not today, contemplate abortion. Pray for them. And you say, how in the world could that be? Well, how in the world could I have even contemplated looking at lust with a woman in my heart? It's irrational. I have a beautiful wife and th- four, four beautiful children. Sin is irrational. Pray. Pray for the doctors. Pray for the nurses. Pray for the secretaries that are answering the phone of these abortion mills. Pray for the politicians that they would have courage to define life as the Bible defines it. Pray for the pastors and the elders that want to stand and be counted on this issue. This is not a simple, this is not an easy topic to speak on. I don't get nervous when I stand in the pulpit much anymore, but I was shaking when I got in this morning. This is not, this is a spiritual topic, and this is one that Satan hates and vehemently opposes those who stand in the way. And if you stand in the way, you will be vehemently opposed. Pray for one another in that way. Pray for your own heart, that it would not grow cold to this issue. It's easy. We go through seasons, and some seasons we're more on fire on issues, and then it waxes and wanes. Pray that your heart does not grow cold to these issues. William, William Wilberforce, which may be one of the greatest, greatest champions of, of life, said this, and I want to close with this. He said it in a 1700 speech before the House of Commons in April 18, 1971. And he's obviously speaking in reference to slavery, but it obviously mirrors closely with abortion. And I, and I want to say this as a word of encouragement. Let us not despair It is a blessed cause and success ere long will crown our exertions. Already we have gained one victory. We have obtained for these poor creatures the recognition of their human nature, which for a while was most shamefully denied. And I I would say amen to this because this is happening today in our country, in our culture is the the life of the unborn is beginning to be recognized once again as life and a child and a human being. This is the first fruits of our efforts. Let us persevere and our triumph will be complete. Never, never will we desist till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name, released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we are present labor, which we at present labor, and extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic of which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarce believe that it has been suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonor to this country. And I would pray that you would be challenged by that. I would be challenged by that. And may you be encouraged, if you're fighting in any way, be encouraged that God is sovereign He will not give His glory to any other. He will not allow the creature to be worshipped more than the Creator. His heart is for these unborn. And if if that is your heart, be encouraged to continue in that fight. And if you've yet to begin the fight, be encouraged to begin the fight. And if you're continuing in the fight, be encouraged to continue and press harder. And may the Lord find us faithful in this. May we be able to say, may, when He returns, He may be able to say, well done in this area to us. That we, we did not desist in taking the gospel to this part. And we did not desist in allowing our own hearts to be seen in the light of a gospel. That we might be challenged and motivated and with compassion go to those souls who desperately need the truth of Scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh what grace is ours and oh what faithfulness is yours that you daily deal with us in such a merciful and compassionate way. And Father, we've taken a breath today And there are 50 million plus, and if you count the whole world, probably a billion or more, maybe two or more, that never drew a breath 
And yet you've given us the grace to draw one today. Oh, Father, I plead that you would not allow me to become wrapped in my existence. That my pride and my selfishness and my pleasure would not be the prevailing thought and decision-making process of each and every day. But, Father, you might allow me to see, and I would extend that to those here and those that are not able to come today, you allow us to see, oh, the grace given to me that should drive me to proclaim the wonderful, magnificent truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him risen and glorified. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You that though we contemplate and though we've thought about such a, such a deep and weighty topic that we're not left with nothing. We're left with everything. We're left with love that is unable to be comprehended. That even though we do this, Christ died for our sins. We cannot fathom this, Lord. And I pray that it would move us, that we'd be hearers of the word and doers of the word. And Father, may we proclaim that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God created man in your in God's own image. Well, that might just be an, an awe-inspiring truth that drives us to proclaim this. And Father, we thank you that as we live out truth and proclaim it and draw near to you in love, reciprocating your love for us, that that is where we find the highest pleasure, the greatest joy in this life, is living for you and your glory. And may we see the lie that the least amount of joy is when we live for ourselves and for our own pleasure. Brother, I thank you for this morning and those who have been able to attend. I thank you for their patience and grace. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.